Hey, welcome to January 2nd, 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. We here at Lawson Heights Alliance Church are glad that you can join us, and we look forward to seeing you every Sunday. This message is from a new series that we have in January called All the Hope We Do Not Yet Fully See. It's from Galatians 5, and today's title is The Only Thing That Really Counts. May God bless you as you listen. How do you feel? Do you feel like you're in a new year yet? few people said, yep, yep. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know how it feels for you. Uh, it feels a little, uh, I feel a little displaced already, uh, just coming out of Christmas. It always kind of feels that way for me. We took down the Christmas tree yesterday, and that sort of kind of puts Christmas behind us, and now we come into a new year, and uh, we're, we're trying to figure things out. Now, I don't know about you, but I know hardly anybody kind of makes New Year's resolutions anymore. Anybody really religious about making New Year's resolutions every year? Ah, not a one of oh, one of you it is, and that's great. The New Year's resolution resolutions are good, and but many people don't make them. At least out loud, they don't. They will maybe keep them a little bit more private, and so silently to yourself. Maybe you hope to drop a few pounds. Uh, maybe start exercising. Maybe start an instrument. Start to learn an instrument. Maybe you have the hope of, of, of learning to be more grateful this year. Maybe you even bought yourself or got for Christmas. Maybe a family member got you a gift, a, a grateful journal or something like that. Or, or maybe you want to just be a better parent or, or maybe learn a different language. All of these are usually quiet aspirations and commitments because most of us just really aren't that convinced that we're going to be able to pull it off. And so we don't commit to anything publicly uh, just to avoid the shame in case something doesn't work out and we don't meet our New New Year's resolutions. You know, it's the same uh, approach that most of us have to our spiritual life. Uh, Quietly, you start the year off right and you say to yourself, you know, I'm going to start the year off right. I'm going to get into my Bible more. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to work at doing devotions every single morning and kind of like other forms of self-help improvement, you, you commit to it quietly. Or, or maybe it's, it's even less of a commitment and more of a, you know, I really should commit to reading my Bible more this year or something like that. And this is why so many pastors start the new year to, with these self-improvement kind of sermons because they, they're hoping to encourage you to, yeah, get on and do a resolution and commit to getting deeper into God's Word and, and all those things. But I thought about doing that for the new year, but then I decided I wasn't going to do that. Instead, this year, I'm going to start with something about your spiritual life that you might not know about yourself. Uh, But if you did, you'd probably never make another spiritual New Year's resolution ever again in your life. Does that sound good? Yeah? For the first month of January, I'd like to spend some time in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, to be specific. I'd love to cover the whole book, but there are other things that I believe God wants us to cover in this year. The book of Galatians is a book that a lot of Christians tend to kind of skip over. Because when you kind of first get into it, and the first couple chapters in it, it kind of feels a little bit more like the book of Leviticus. And you know what it's like with the book of Leviticus, right, in the Old Testament. Now, we say this is the book of Galatians. But keep in mind that these books are actually New Testament letters. They're letters written, most of them, by the Apostle Paul to various churches or people groups. And this one was one of many letters written to some of the young churches that Paul had planted, or in other words, started during his missionary journeys uh, beginning around 45 A.D. 
we see his first missionary journey here. Now, the Apostle's introduction in chapter 1 kind of sets the tone for us as we, as we begin this study in chapter 5. But let's look at Genesis, or Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Paul says, uh, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So this letter deals with the fact that there were many churches in Galatia that were dealing with a group of people that were called the Judaizers. These were Jewish men who had kind of infiltrated the church and had started to demand of new believers that they live a different gospel than the one Paul preached to them. Namely, these false teachers were saying that in order to be saved, you had to believe in Christ, plus you had to add the obligations of the old covenant, the Jewish religion, to your faith practices. It's like the obligation of circumcision, which we see throughout the book, of males only, of course. Circumcision was the old covenant sign that you were of Israel, that you belonged to Israel. And it was expected of all Jewish boys that they would be circumcised by the eighth day. Converts to Judaism were also circumcised. In Acts 15.1, Luke tells us, he says, uh, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's why Paul says in Galatians 1 that these men were teaching a false, perverted gospel. It was Jesus plus something else, something from the Old Covenant. So Galatians then is a book or a letter written specifically to counter these legalisms and heresies and to address the centrality of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Legalism essentially has to do with trying to earn God's favor. That by doing certain things, you could increase your right standing before God and be better accepted by him. It makes Christianity a performance-based faith like Judaism was. The problem is, though this theological debate was solved at the first council, the first church council in Jerusalem, we kind of sometimes still fall into legalistic uh, thinking as well from time to time. Somehow we convince ourselves that if we're reading our Bible or praying or going to church or any other number of spiritual activities, then we can somehow earn some sort of favor with God and kind of stay in God's good books, right? We sometimes feel that way. But when we miss a day's Bible reading or we fail to spend time in prayer with God every day and it turns into weeks maybe, and, and if we don't attend church, then somehow we think that we have lost favor with God and we, we haven't pleased him. And he's not pleased with us. And as we see, as we will see and expand on, the truth about Christianity is that God's acceptance of us is not based on our performance. I know the legalist in all of us wants to kind of resist that, maybe not publicly, but privately, maybe even subconsciously. But we really do think sometimes that I've got to earn, got to do something to show God how serious I am about him spiritually. 
No doubt that's what made the Judaizers' heresy so appealing to the Galatian Christians. It fed their need to want to please God. And, and, and we all have that need, don't we? Who of us does not want to please God? Of course we do, and that's a good thing. But they were trying to appease God, not just please him. So as we study Galatians 5, what really counts when it comes to pleasing God? Galatians chapter 5, let's read verses 1 to 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You, are, uh, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness which is from hope, which, uh, for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, though we say that all the time, Lord, we do right now in this moment intentionally bear witness to that. We do thank you for this word of yours. By it, we learn what it means to please you. By it, we learn what it means to live the Christian life. What it, by it, we learn the gospel in its richness and fullness. But we also learn what things to avoid. And today, Lord, as we begin this series on the book of Galatians 5, we pray that you would guard our hearts and then you would open up our hearts to your spirit only so that he may speak to us, so that he may teach us, so that he may help us to rid ourselves of things that don't measure up to your word, but Lord, that show us your ongoing grace. We bless you, Lord, for this word, and we thank you that you are going to do with us what you please today so that, Lord, we can be the kind of church that honors you in every way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what really counts when it comes to pleasing God? Number one, what counts is that you are already totally free. What counts is that you are already totally free. Verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has, that's past tense, has, but it's also in the Greek ongoing, has set us free. So Paul says, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If someone were to ask you, what is the meaning of Christianity? You could easily say, and be right, by saying, freedom. Christianity is freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And, and that's, that's a great statement, but it's rarely what we're known for, is it? When people are asked about Christianity, when we're asked about Christianity, what do people say? It's all about the rules. It's all about being a goody-two-shoes. It's nothing more than a bunch of religious, self-righteous people forcing their religion on others, right? But how is that possible when it was for freedom that Christ has set us free? 
how is it that we've, claimed, we've brought that about? Well, honestly, it's like that because, because of the kind of Christianity that we, and that's a collective we, that's all of us, have shown the world over the last 100 years. Why would anyone want our religion if that's what they think of it? Now, the problem is, is that often the kind of religion that many of us think it is, is that kind of religion too, even when we know better. We often have a habit, certain habits that, and, and ways of thinking that kind of reinforce our real belief that we're really not that free. And that's still prevalent among God's people even today. That somehow we got to do something to show God how serious we are about him. To win his approval. And so we kind of fence the gospel and our, and our Christian experience with rules to reinforce our good behavior. And we feel that when we miss a day's reading of the Bible or we fail to spend time in prayer every day or if we don't attend church on a weekly basis, then we don't feel like we've got God's pleasure that he's not pleased with us. And you know this is your thinking if you've ever tried to bribe God by, by recommitting these things, like at New Year's. And we tend to judge others' faith when we, when we hear that they don't read their Bibles every day, or they don't pray to God every day, or they don't attend church every Sunday. So what does our freedom free us from? The quest for freedom is a theme found everywhere in your Bibles. From Genesis to Revelation, this book is about freedom. Just three chapters into the story of God's creation, humanity gave up its freedom by choosing to rebel against God. Remember what it was that he told Adam and Eve? You may eat of any tree in the garden, right? They had freedom. They had vast amounts of freedom. But from time to time, from that time forward... That perfect freedom that God created in the Garden of Eden was gone. From the moment Adam and Eve rebelled, that freedom was gone. And the long-term effects were both physical and spiritual for us. Reaching to every generation who were in Adam. Through the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the way to approach God was in a temple. And with a sacrifice for sin. Day after day month after month, year after year. Then in Christ, by his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, we got set free from the consequences of our original fall from grace. And we got set free from the yoke of that old covenant sacrificial system. Praise the Lord. And Jesus established a new covenant in his blood. And that's what communion is all about. And we're going to be celebrating that later. Listen to Romans 8, 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are free, totally, completely free now in Christ. Amen? Essentially, the gospel frees us from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Our sin, Adam's sin. And the, and the gospel frees us from the curse of death, which is the consequence of sin, isn't it? 
Because of Jesus, you no longer have to bear the weight of shame and regret that the old you kept you under because of sin. And you were in bondage to that. Not only that, but now you have no need to fear death. Death is scary, for sure. There's, there's some aspects of it that are painful. But for the Christian, death is a shadow, not an enemy, right? So you don't need to fear the after-death consequences of sin because you are trusting Jesus alone to save you from it all. Because you now have faith in Christ, you will never die. Even the body that dies will be raised again, imperishable. On that last day, you will live forever. What a wonderful promise. And because of those freedoms... The Apostle Paul also declares that the gospel allows us the freedom to approach a holy God anytime and everywhere we want. Wow, what a wonderful freedom that is. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Ephesians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It's because you are free in Christ that you're able to approach God. Freedom, Christian freedom, is both the ends and the means of the Christian life. And everything that the Christian gospel is, is freedom. And that's why Paul instructs the Galatian Christians here, stand firm, 5 verse 1, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't let anyone convince you to give up your freedom for a life of rule-keeping religion. Now remember that these Galatian Christians were converts of Paul. That was Paul's missionary tactic. To go into a new community, find the nearest synagogue and preach the gospel there, the gospel of Jesus, to the Jews there. And from there the gospel would spread. Acts 14.1 tells us that Paul and Barnabas went into a synagogue in Iconium to preach. Iconium is in Galatia. But we also know that many other converts were Gentiles, in other words non-Jews. And, and they, once they believed, they, they once believed a religion which was a mix of pagan gods and goddesses, but now they believe only in Christ. The thing that these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, have in common, and, and which Paul's uh, uh, letter addresses, is that both of them were familiar with performance-based religion. They knew what appeasing their deity was all about. But out of the synagogue, or maybe it was some Jewish converts traveling around some who had placed their faith in Jesus had a really hard time letting go of the Jewishness of their faith. Paul calls these men Judaizers. They were demanding that the new Gentile converts become circumcised and follow some other aspects of the old covenant law of self-justification in order to keep your favor with God. Think about it today. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian tradition where you were told that if you want to be a Christian, there were certain things you had to do. You had to dress a certain way, especially on Sunday. You had to act a certain way. And there was a list of things you could not do, or you'd lose God's favor. Or worse yet, you could even lose your salvation if you didn't keep up. And growing up in these traditions, the default mode of your heart became self-justification and performance-based as a means of keeping God's approval 
even if it only started as a way of keeping your parents' approval. Galatians 5.1, friend, stand firm. And do not let yourselves be burdened again or any more by a yoke of slavery. Yeah, but don't these rules kind of help us keep from falling out of God's favor? Shouldn't there be some rules? I mean, doesn't it make sense? Friend, what counts, what really counts, what justifies you before the Father is not what you do or don't do. Because the freedom secured by Jesus makes you unconditionally and totally free. Keeping the rules is motivated by guilt. Faith in Jesus alone is motivated by love. And there's a big difference between the two, isn't there? So say this after me. I am totally free in Christ. Not partially free. Not mostly free. I am totally free in Christ. Friends, that's your new reality. Isn't that a good reality to be a part of? Number two. You can lose your freedom if you depend on anything other than Jesus to justify you. You can lose your freedom if you depend on anything other than Jesus to justify you. Now, I know that there is a big debate out there, even today, about what you can and cannot lose when it comes to your faith. There is that infernal once saved, always saved debate. In, a, in other words, can you lose your salvation? Let's see what the Apostle Paul says we can lose. Galatians 5, verses 2 to 4. Paul says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, of course, he's talking about circumcision for religious purposes in order to appease God. Okay? He's not talking about normal circumcision. You, are, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, some have tried to say that this isn't about losing your salvation, but listen to the phrases Paul uses. Verse 2. Another, if you depend on anything else to justify you, like circumcision, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 4. If you depend on anything else to justify you, like law-keeping, then you are alienated from Christ. Verse 4 again. If you depend on anything else to justify you other than Christ then you have fallen away from grace. In another letter, Paul explains how to stay reconciled to Christ. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And then there is this little two-letter word, if, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Here's the bottom line. If you demand of others or yourself that you or they must do certain things in order to justify yourself before God, in other words, to merit his salvation, then that is not the gospel, that is heresy. 
That's why Paul commands that we stand firm in the gospel that he preached. Because if you continue in the true faith, established and firm, and you do not move from it, then you can be sure of your hope. It's a matter of surety. But believing and practicing this Jesus plus something else, heresy, makes Christ of no value in your life. It alienates you from Christ. And it shows that you have fallen away from grace. So how saved is the person who is alienated from Christ? Mark Paul's words, not very. So how do you know if you are a Jesus plus something else heretic? <laughs> well, if it's just Jesus, if it's just Jesus who justifies, then you don't fall into this camp. If there's something else that you need to do to be or to stay saved other than the grace of Christ, then you fit into that camp. It's that simple. I, I know in the past I put demands on myself and on others when I first believed, especially when I was first saved. I remember wrestling with certain expectations that some in the church I was saved in were placing on me and on other people. And I can still remember the people who were so afraid of the grace of God and the freedom and the grace that grace gave them that they imposed some pretty ridiculous stuff on the church. I think in some ways, by laying down all these expectations, they were, they were trying to protect themselves and us from slipping into sin. But it wasn't long before their expectations turned into judgments. And it wasn't long before I felt guilty for everything. And that guilt made me feel even more distant from God than I felt even before these people got in my heads. Guilt and shame paralyze progress in our faith, my friends. And if you are wrestling with them, then there is something about the freedom that you have in Christ that you're not getting, that you're not understanding and appreciating and living. But you can. Don't stay in that guilt and that shame because Jesus doesn't want you to. Jesus died to free you from it so that you wouldn't have to live in guilt and shame anymore. That's the purpose of the gospel. So if you're feeling guilty about something and full of shame about things, you need to talk with someone about that and work through that. At one point, I got to reading early, and I'm so thankful that I did. I don't know who gave me the book, but somebody gave me Chuck Swindoll's book called The Grace Awakening. Have you, have you read it? Anyone read it? It's an older book already. It's got to be 30 years old. Grace that is presented in all of its charms and beauty is risky, Chuck says. But it brings grace busters as well as grace killers out from under the rocks. Quoting the amazing preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, In fact, grace is not only risky, it is downright dangerous. Meaning that some will take advantage of it, some will misinterpret it and misrepresent it. But if we claim to be ministers of grace and no one is taking advantage of it, then maybe we haven't preached it hard enough or strong enough. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Now, the inner legalist in me thinks it's, that's kind of reckless. And these two wise Bible teachers would agree that it is, but it's also necessary that it is. That we allow people to be this reckless. 
us with the, with the grace of God. It's necessary for us in order to understand and live out the Christian freedom that we claim we have in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, right? Number three. What really counts is faith expressing itself through love. Verses five to six. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing? Yeah, the only thing. And the remarkable thing took, a remarkable thing took place in you when you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Number one, Jesus set you free. Amen? You are free from the need and the obligation to appease God with your behavior and sacrifice. And that freedom came to you free of charge. To you, not to Jesus, not to the Father. Remember earlier in Colossians 1, you were once alienated from and an enemy of God. So there was nothing that you could do in that state, in that old reality. There was nothing that you could do to earn that freedom, and you did not deserve it. So how did you get it? How did you get free? Well, through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. When Jesus died on that cross, he canceled the sin that separated you from the Father. Canceled it. Just done. Completely done. That's part of your new reality now. His resurrection then defeated death. That fateful consequence of sin. That's part of your new reality too. His ascension back to the Father after his resurrection, after giving the Great Commission, he ascended back to the Father and he gave his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to empower you to live holy lives and to guarantee your ultimate reunion with the Savior at the end of the age. That's part of your new reality too. Did you do anything to do that, to earn that, to, to get that? No. You did nothing to earn or deserve that new reality, did you? And there's nothing you can do to keep it, can you? Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The only one who can boast is Jesus. That new reality is what the Bible claims happened when you believed, when you placed your faith in Jesus. But sometimes, sometimes, let's be honest, it doesn't feel very real. Sometimes it feels unreal, doesn't it? Because we mess up. Sometimes we still sin. And that sin doesn't make us feel very right with God. We feel like whatever we had with God, we lost. And now we have to try to get it back or earn it back, maybe with right performance. And that's when we try to bargain with God. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 5, Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Great verse. Let me read it to you in a couple other translations. This one is the expanded Bible. It says, but the Spirit makes us sure that God will accept us because of our faith in Christ alone. 
the easy-to-read translation reads like this. I say this because our hope of being right with God comes through faith. The Holy Spirit helps us feel sure as we wait for that hope. I'll give you now the Mike Newson translation. Now, granted, it's a little wordy. You know, he's, he tends to be a little wordy most times. But our new reality is that because we put our faith in Jesus, we are right now declared righteous by God. We're fully accepted by him, fully. But the, full, the fullest reality of that righteousness is yet to come when Christ returns and we finally physically stand before the Lord. But for now, by the same faith, we depend on the presence and power of the Spirit to get us from today to that day, right? That's the essence of the Christian life. Friend, you are free right now, fully, totally in Jesus. You are now and always will be accepted by the Father. Don't let your inner voice, don't let any other voice outside of you tell you that you're not and that there's something you have to do to earn it back. You are now and always will be accepted by the Father. So don't add to your faith anything because there's nothing you can do to add to your righteous standing before the Lord. Are you going to mess up from time to time? Sure. Sometimes. But by faith, and by dependence on the Holy Spirit, you can be confident that he has guaranteed for you an unbroken relationship with God forever. And that's what learning to live by faith is all about. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be learning more about what that looks like practically. And what does that feel, and what doesn't feel real about this new reality, though, is that God created it in you by Jesus, and you didn't earn it, and so it doesn't feel like it's a part of you. He will one day make it fully real, though, when you stand before him, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and then it will totally feel real. So get comfortable with that unreal feeling. But always remind yourself that you are free in Christ. Until then, the only thing that counts in your, is your faith in Christ, expressing itself through love to others. So I want to give you two practical things that you can do this next week to put the word into practice. First of all, my encouragement to you today is to stop beating up on yourself and burdening yourself with obligations to please God. You are already fully pleasing God because you accepted his son. Give yourself the freedom to live in that grace that God has given you and just love him in response. Learn to make that your response for everything. Number two, stop beating up and burdening others with obligations and Christianized rules. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit for those other people. And that might be people like your spouse. It might be people like your kids. It might be someone like your neighbor, a coworker, maybe some of the people in the church. Give them grace. Give them grace and allow them to learn in the time that the Holy Spirit gives them to be able to learn step by step to walk in the grace of God themselves. And just love them. So think of your life network. In your life network, who is it that you're beating up on? Who is it that you're beating up on these days? Who needs to... Who do you need to go to and say to them, you know what, be encouraged today. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Because you know, you've probably looked throughout your life network and see people there that you know that are beating up on themselves. And you can be a great ambassador for Jesus today by reminding them that they are free indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. There's that thank you again. But Lord, we are and we mean it because it is by this word that you teach us what it means to be your people living by a new reality. And so, Lord, in Jesus, we claim that new reality that he purchased for us by his blood, by his body. And, Lord, as we come into this communion meal, we just want it to be soaked in an understanding of the grace that you gave us through Christ. That by his body, by his blood, we are free and free indeed. And so, Lord, help us to own this time. In Jesus' name.